Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, how are you? How is your uh, ACES conference going so far? Hello. Uh, yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, the conference is very vibrant and you know gives me all new ideas, so it makes me excited about new projects and doing my research. So it's going well. It's well. <laughs> really good to hear. So you are an you are an assistant professor at Oklahoma City University. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us just a little bit, you know, about yourself, your research interests, what you've been working on so far? I'm originally from Kazakhstan, and but I did my PhD on British literature, actually the time of Shakespeare, and then I gradually moved towards Slavic studies, sort of to connect my, you know, I sort of identity as the person from Kazakhstan and the Russian speaker to my research, and I became interested in uh, Soviet popular culture of the 1960s, 1970s, and, and I started researching all kinds of topics. Um, I also wrote about uh, Vladimir Vysotsky. It's not a published thing yet. Um, appropriation of Hamlet and this paper to, at this conference was about you know the Soviet version of uh, Winnie the Pooh but generally I'm interested in the questions of adaptation and translation and how things get transported across cultures especially the, the, the Soviet Western encounters in the 1970s no, 1960s right so is it, is it how um, the Soviet Union ad adapted things from Western culture yeah, and other yeah. cultures? Is um, it mainly Western culture or any other culture? I'm looking now, just drawing on my language strengths, you know, mm -hmm. as a Russian and English speaker, you know, I'm looking at like appropriation of Western culture, like uh, British, American. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so, I mean, you already mentioned the, the paper that you presented at AC, so let's, let's get into it. The t official title was Naive Absurdity in the Soviet Winnie the Pooh, uh -huh. um, and you, uh, a little bit was, you know, comparing Disney's Winnie the Pooh to Soviet Winnie Pooh, uh -huh. um, and you also, you know, touched on how, like, the differences as well as the, the deeper meanings in the cartoon that was sort of for children, but at the same time, mm -hmm. there were some factors that made it a little bit separate from that. So um, would you just like to introduce us to your paper, like what you wrote about? Sure, yes, uh, it's an exciting uh, topic for me because, uh, you know, as a child, I used to, just like you, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned, I used to watch this cartoon growing up, and I had actually no idea, you know, when I was I came to the U.S., I was very surprised to find the Disney version of Winnie Pooh, which was very different. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I just got interested in this topic, and um, uh, in, in the paper, I look at... Uh, uh, how the Soviet cartoon is funny specifically because it draws on the distinctive Soviet types of people, you know, sort of it draws in on the sort of the cultural knowledge that you would have growing up in a former Soviet Union. Um, you know, uh, so for example, the rabbit is the Russian intelligentsia member <laughs> with the glasses and, you know, he, I, I talk about the changes that the director made and the disputes he had with the Russian translator of the book, Boris Zakhader who thought, you know, um, the book is his, and he talked about, you know, so I think that there are several actually Soviet Winnie the Pooh, you know, like there is a translated version by Boris Zahoder, mm -hmm. but there is also the film, or oh, the cartoon, the animated version, which is much more, like, no, well, maybe not much more, but like, it popularized the cartoon right. to a greater degree, and so I talk about the changes that he made to make it like, more Soviet. And, mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
but you know, I will feel free to, to ask me any questions. Otherwise, I can just tell you my whole paper. I would love to have you t tell you your whole paper. I mean, this is kind of what this is um, for. But I mean, I think one of the biggest differences for me was, that was very fascinating was the differences, mm -hmm. because the the source material is essentially the same. But mm -hmm. Disney went with you know this very childish, their toys mm -hmm. version, whereas the Soyuz Multifilm is is almost. Um, yeah, it, it is very different, and mm -hmm. you were even talking about just like the design of mm -hmm. Winnie the Pooh itself was was mm -hmm. very different. I think you called him a potato, like a potato <laughs> shape, which is fantastic. Um, so yeah, like could you like expand a little bit on you know like the main differences that you found and yeah, right. So I think the first most obvious differences is the way Winnie the Pooh looks. So the Disney version, his uh, sunny yellow color, and mm -hmm. he uh, wears the red shirt. You know. I mean, the color was sort of added by the Disney uh, later on, um, but he's very happy, he's very gentle, you know, he, he, he's sort of silly, and I think one of the phrases that repeats is silly old bear, mm -hmm. that's what Christopher Robin calls him, mm -hmm. and he recognizes himself that he's kind of silly, you mm -hmm. know, and he doesn't take it so seriously, and he says, oh, bother frequently, yes. and, <laughs> and so that's the, the sort of happy and gentle and slightly absurd, but in a sort of... Uh, innocent kind of way, uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh, and then the Soviet version, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's funny, but he's much more, um, uh, well, the sh I'll tell you about the visual shape first, right, so he, he looks like a potato, yeah. <laughs> that's what Bariza had there, the Russian translator actually called the director's version, uh, because he didn't like Hitruk's uh, oh. uh, portrayal of, of the, you know, he, he wanted to go with the Christopher Robin and the childhood mm -hmm. imagination, and instead, you know, he, uh, Chris, uh, he took the director, removed Christopher Robin, and made uh, uh, the Soviet Winnie the Pooh into his own like independent character who is kind of mischievous and kind of selfish and uh, you know sort of a trickster almost kind of figure. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I talk a lot about that and how he. Um, one of the major changes that he took made, he added this like songs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that were not even in the Russian translation, Krichalki, Pachtelki, Vapilki, mm -hmm. <laughs> and how the, the Soviet Winnie Pooh, he like likes to march and sing this Krichalki, uh, Pachtelki, Vapilki, but um, to the tune of sort of an upbeat pioneer song, mm -hmm. even though if you look at the content of the songs, the, you know, they're very far from yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, slogans like Pioneer Sigda Gotov. Mm -hmm. Actually, they emphasize how, you know, Paraba Patkripitsa or um, about the morning, how you have to visit your friends in the morning while you still have honey. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he takes like a very kind of self interested uh, text up. And he, but he gives the, the, the shape of like a, almost like a Soviet slogan, mm -hmm. you know, and he marches always. And then he sort of distorts in a parodies the, the, the form of a pioneer song, I think. And then the, all the other characters also can be read as sort of spoofs of on recognizable Soviet types. For example, the owl, you know, she's called a she mm -hmm. in, in the Russian version, Sava Anna, mm -hmm. and then she wears like a red hat and like a pink scarf. And she talks like in a very melodramatic voice. Yes. You can clearly recognize that she's meant to be like a woman, a character from a Soviet drama or something mm -hmm. like this. Um, and so, and then uh, you know, I think she's sort of integrated into the plot more as her own character and. Uh, 
Mm. And then the, the rabbit, Krolik, as I said before, you know, he, he's very distinctive, very recognizable, um, and he's actually a very unpleasant character. You he know? Is. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's kind of unpleasant in the American version as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he's clearly like an intelligentsia member in, mm-hmm. in the Soviet version because he, you know, the way he, he behaves himself and how he has like a ticking clock and he looks, you know, at the clock um, to emphasize that, you know, when you pull overstays his welcome mm-hmm. and he makes him wipe his feet on the doormat. So all of these things are nowhere in the Russian translation or in the English version by Mew. So it accentuates his like pedantic mm-hmm. <laughs> qualities and makes fun of them, you yeah. know. So I think he really did a wonderful job of like rethinking the cartoon, you know, entirely. Um, Right, and so I think the, the model has been the prevalent model has been the fidelity discourse and to com- trying to compare the adaptation to the original, right, kind of that's the old model and I think people started to move away from that and talk about adaptation as a creative process and look at more the target audience and how, you know, there are other criteria for evaluating the, su- the success or the failure of an adaptation, not the original, but maybe other criteria, the impact that has on the target audience, maybe, you know, it's ethics, but looking at it more like an, as an independent product. And so that's what I was trying to do as well, you know, mm-hmm. look at it as like a Soviet product, not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, it's just like one of the sources maybe, but there are other things that he sort of used, for example, the background is, uh, seems to be modeled on like a, a, a avant-garde mm-hmm. art, you know, uh, like the paintings of Marc Chagall, you know, it's very two-dimensional yes. and sort of childish, you know, mm-hmm. it looks like a car, um, almost a drawing by a child, mm-hmm. it's very um, bright, uh, vivid. Yeah. Simple almost yeah, too. It's very minimalistic, mm-hmm. simple, but there are lots of, like, you know, color yes. and uh, lots of objects mm-hmm. at the same time. So it's interesting how he mixed sort of different elements, like the Soviet uh, reality, but also, um, you know, like this two-dimensional background. Um, the pioneer songs, you know. Um, so I think, you know, of course, the the the, the Disney uh, version. Oh, the Di- no, maybe not the Disney version. He truck says he never saw the Disney version, even though it came. The, the two series, uh, in the three episodes. There are three episodes that came out in the late 1960s, early 1970s, mm-hmm. and he says he never saw them. Um, <laughs> right, and then he said that if. If he saw them, he wouldn't even have tried to make, you know, his own adaptation. Because why? Yeah. To make uh, one for one already exists. But Soviet animation was really influenced by Disney during mm-hmm. the time, and the 1960s was actually the time when um, people started to move more from this away from Disney. And there was a lot of discussion about uh, developing their own national animation mm-hmm. and trying to move away. And I think in his truck you see how he sort of revises, you know. Um, Disney sort of trademark kind of moves, you know, he moves away from the sentimentality mm-hmm. of, of the Disney um, and sort of his, his version is much more laconic, sharp and sort of minimalistic mm-hmm. and satirical and much less sort of realistic in a represent- representational sense, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a toy. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that there's sort of satirical themes mm-hmm. in in Vinnie Pugh. What, uh, what sort of you know satire is present there? Just out of curiosity. Uh huh. Well, I think just the satire of a model Soviet citizen who cares mm-hmm. about the communal good mm-hmm. and sacrifices 
himself and is always optimistic and upbeat. But instead we have a, a bear who sort of is like a little pioneer, but he wants to get honey and he's very mischievous. It's very important. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think it's very funny that they gave him like a, like a little child, almost like Peter Chok. You yeah. know? He always looks up to him because in the Disney version, Pooh sort of functions by himself and you know the other toys are his friends, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily a team. But in the Soviet version, you really have them almost always together. Mm-hmm. And I think that accentuates the, the comedy because the little um, piglet, he always looks up at him and yeah. know, he has such a... <laughs> right, but the, sort of the, the, the parody, I guess, of the Soviet uh, ideology, I think. Uh, and not necessarily sort of that he disagrees with it, you know, he took uh, throughout his life, he, he was very kind of careful and diligent and he was well liked, uh, you know, by the authorities. Uh, but, and I think animation also was seen as sort of, you know, maybe a less um, a serious genre. Yeah, right? yeah, it's like a little bit under the radar. It's yeah. like more for children, uh-huh. so like maybe a little bit less strict on, on uh-huh. that view, yeah. Yeah, so and then by the time he was making the cartoon, he really had a statue as like a great director. You know, mm-hmm. he, he had a reputation by that time. So I think maybe he had more freedom to, to do what he wanted. And he, he in his interviews, he talks a lot about the selection of people who would voice the, the, the characters and how, you know, he spent much time trying to select the best one and he didn't like it and he tried to cast a different person. So he, he really sort of invested in this project mm-hmm. as well. Do you know the story of like why Vinnie Pooh's voice is so that distinct? It's so like gravelly and and again compared to like the Disney version where it's mm-hmm. happy and high pitched and 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 friendly. The Vinnie Pooh, like yeah. Russian Vinnie Pooh, is very <laughs> yeah yeah he's yeah you're good. You're right. His voice is very memorable. It's like low and raspy. And yeah, good, you know. And that's a, that's a choice he made like yeah, specifically. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I did, um, I know that I mean it was uh, voiced by the famous a- uh, actor yes. Leonov, and actually he he had he talks about how he he took, talks about how he listened to different people, you know, and he listened to Leonov, but he still didn't like any of them. Mm-hmm. So I think he had a very specific idea in his mind about what he wanted, and finally I think one of the the, the sound person who was responsible for sound tells him told him to accelerate the frequency of Leonov's voice. Oh, really? Mechanically. Yeah, so they accelerate, so he talks, but then, you know, it would be like... It's a little sped up. Yeah, it's sped up. Huh. And then, so he was like, oh, now that's exactly what I want. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so they kept that, uh, you know, so I think, uh, I don't know, but it gives him more like the, the, the charm of like a, maybe a streetwise person or a little bit more kind of mature yeah and that's also i would definitely say that because i I think the the thing with disney's winnie the pooh is that it's he's dumb a little bit he's a little bit dim-witted and Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that's why he says oh bother all the time because he's making these mistakes or he's like russian vinnie pooh is very capable yeah he's very Yeah, if yeah. anything, he takes care of Piglet when they go to Rabbit's house and he's like wiping Piglet's like, uh-huh, mouth. Oh, he's his child. Yeah. Right? That's what you do, do. Like you would wash your babies, <laughs> uh, you know. So he does. Yeah, he's like the older brother yes. or like you know, a parent or something. It's a very different relationship. And yeah, it's, it's a very interesting interpretation of that. But the audience this was still for children. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it was popular with children, you know. Uh, 
I mean, I, I remember I, w- I liked and all my friends liked reading yeah. book, everybody, you know, it's something that's sort of a Soviet classic mm-hmm. and uh, it survived, you know, even the collapse of the former Soviet Union and you know, if you watch it on YouTube now, people say, oh, nobody makes such a kind, nice cartoons <laughs> and you know, associate all kinds of like false nostalgia, you mm-hmm. know, with these uh, um, cartoons, but some, this is something that's, I think, even now, people who grew up in the former Soviet Union, they show it to their kids, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a product <laughs> of that. Like, we, we came here in the United States and that was like, that you should watch this. Like, this is something that was like given to me in my childhood as sort uh-huh. of an educational process. And I, it, it's something that will like, it was, was ingrained in me, mm-hmm. um, which is why I reached out to you because I think, again, like just the scholarship on, on something that is part of your childhood and you think is so simple and then to add depth to it is, is very, very interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think uh, animation studies doesn't have as many scholars and as high prestige maybe as studied, you know, something that's more, like, you know, sort of mainstream. Yes. But I think in terms of popularity, I'm generally interested in popular culture. And I think something that affected millions of, you know, people in the former Soviet Union is worth it to be studied. Yeah. Perhaps more so than, you know, something that's considered like classic, you know, in, in a different mm-hmm. sense, sort of critically. Um, I don't know, like Hamlet, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's great, but, you know, how, how many people actually do read it, you know, yeah. so I think, you know, both both need their own attention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, so um, that's what you presented at ACES this year, so what can we expect from you in the future? What are you thinking of working on next? So I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of this as a book on a, a Soviet... Um, Western literary and kind of cultural encounters. Uh, so I tried to develop my paper on uh, Vladimir Vysotsky, mm-hmm. and he's sort of again he's like a very popular icon. You know, he was a singer and a dissident figure, and so I'm writing about him and the way he sort of breached the gap between sort of highbrow and lowbrow culture. You know, just like sort of Winnie Pooh mm-hmm. transcends, I think, in mm-hmm. many ways, you know, class and education divides. Maybe Vysotsky sort of does the same, you know, mm-hmm. maybe in different ways, but from the evidence it's clear that he sort of, you know, was popular among many, many people. Right. Uh, uh, so I'm interested in this sort of the public sphere and how you can sort of bridge the gap between, you know, especially in like, I think nowadays, you know, in the <laughs> political climate where people are very divided in yes. the US. Mm-hmm. It's nice to look at somebody that actually brings people together mm-hmm. and you know, functions as sort of like a public forum where people, everybody is invested, everybody yeah. wants to talk about that. So just mm-hmm. for this reason, I'm also interested in this question. That's very interesting. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh. Yeah, uh, good luck on your research, and uh, I hope you have a good rest of your ACs. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. You're listening to the Slavic Connection ACs 2019 San Francisco. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Sunny Rucker Chang. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Rucker Chang, would you mind introducing yourself where you teach maybe a little overview of what you research? Sure. Um, My name is Sunny Rucker Chang. I'm an assistant professor at University of Cincinnati. Um, I also run the European Studies program there. And my research really is focused on um, cultural and racial constructions in the Balkans. Right now I'm also focusing on migration. So looking at student migrant groups, also Chinese migration into the region, and how we might be able to dialogue between 
Black European Studies and Southeast European Studies. Mm -hmm. At ACES, currently you're giving a paper on uh, the non-aligned movement and Yugoslavia's role in it. Yes. So how, from your position, how do you basically address Yugoslavia's role in the non-aligned movement as it relates to blackness? So what I'm looking at is how we can think about the, Yugos the non-aligned movement in Yugoslavia's role, but not necessarily in terms of it being the leader of the movement, but rather how through its engagement with the non-aligned movement in the countries that would be non-aligned member states in the 50s and early 60s, how those students through non-aligned outreach, specifically through student exchange programs and student mobility schemes, and how those students constantly being in first Belgrade but then throughout former Yugoslavia really exposed Yugoslavs to a form of blackness which I call epidermal blackness or physical blackness, which other people would also relate to race, right? Sort of these racialized physical differences and markers of difference and how that really changed the idea of who could participate in brotherhood and unity by making it global, mm -hmm. which then, I'm sorry, <laughs> which then changes the idea of what Yugoslavia looks like and who can be a member of Yugoslavia. So these student exchange programs, they were predominantly uh, students seeking university degrees from basically what parts of the world and what primarily were they studying in Yugoslavia? Yeah, so it was primarily decolonizing and decolonized countries. So it started out fairly early in the 50s with um, India and Burma, and then it expanded to decolonizing countries in Africa, and then it moved on to more decolonizing countries in Asia. But you can see as Yugoslav international interest changed, then the populations of students changed. And what the students were meant to be is sort of a conduit for Yugoslav products, Yugoslav um, international relations, and just really promoting the idea of what Yugoslav was, Yugoslavia was and what it could be. Do you think that that was a goal that was realized in these countries? Because I know Yugoslavia built some, they sent workers to these countries yes, to build factories, industry. Um, was it a successful engagement, I guess, is my question? On some level, yes, it was a successful engagement, but not necessarily in terms of what they hoped to realize. So yes, there were infrastructure projects. Yes, there was um, the creation of communities. But I think that what's interesting for me personally now is the legacy. Mm -hmm. And really what you see in terms of legacy is um, fond memories of Yugoslavia. And so now what you have are students, a new generation of students that are going to Serbia um, as of 2010 in the World in Serbia movement. And those same students are in Yugoslavia, a lot of, that are in Yugoslavia or in Serbia now had parents, grandparents that studied in Yugoslavia and therefore the connections that are being made or that were made in the 50s and 60s are being sustained now. And so these students who were coming from decolonized countries were predominantly um, black and brown racialized students. Yes. And so how were they received and are they getting kind of the same reception now outside of Yugoslavia in the 21st century? So how were they received in the 50s um, and early 60s? Initially, mm -hmm. there was a lot of shock and backlash and actually Milorad Lazic writes a fair amount of this and so does Dragomir Bonjic. Um, they were not accepted for the most part, but um, there's been a fair amount of work on this that shows how through the incorporation of these students into this idea of brotherhood and unity, what I call global brotherhood and unity, and also just daily interactions, living together in the dorms, um, going to parties, marriages, etc., they came to be um, seen as um, the same people. Are. And as a matter of fact, in my presentation, I have this little clip from um, a, an art 
exhibit called um, Tito in Africa Picturing Solidarity, which you probably, or maybe you've heard of, I don't know, but there's a man who's interviewed who lives next door, lived next to the Patrice Lumumba um, dorm, and says that at first when he saw a black man, it was so strange, right? His teeth so bright, and he'd never seen anyone like that. But over time, their interaction, they came to be the East, came to be Istinarod, or the same people. Mm -hmm. So it's about, a, you know, long-term exposure interactions, etc. So that was that generation. Now, one of the things that becomes important in thinking about this contemporary population is that uh, Serbs were essentially ostracized globally for at least a generation. So when these new students were coming in, some and of when you say the generation, yeah. what time? Period? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the generation uh, that came to adulthood in the early 2000s and 90s, right? So they really hadn't experienced much difference um, in terms of racialized difference, people who look different. And so when these new students came in, I've been talking to them actually as part of my research, they say that people weren't necessarily hostile, but people did stare at them. And I can speak from my own personal experience that when you are a person of color walking through Belgrade, or you were in the early 2000s, people stared at you because it wasn't a, you weren't a common sight. Um, but no physical violence, just really curiosity. Mm -hmm. But now um, the students that are there have nothing but good things to say. And I've seen over the past four or five years now that their reception is, they're, they're very much accepted and they're pretty much integrated into society. Um, so perhaps part of the legacy of the non-aligned movement and having so many students come and live and stay in Yugoslavia has had an impact on the experiences of students today. At least that's what I believe. And so now in the region of former Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. um, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, etc., uh, Macedonia, how how do you see blackness being engaged with, especially, um, let's say, in an era in which a lot of people are trying to be included in the European Union, how is blackness put on center stage? So I think in this regard, it's really important to separate out Serbia and Montenegro from the other Yugoslav states, and even more specifically, maybe Serbia. Um, I don't think you can take and I say that because I see them as the most natural successors of Yugoslavia, and I'm not the only person who says this. Tomislav Vanginovic, for example, makes, this, uh, makes the argument. Um, so I see their engagement with blackness as a way of reviving the non-aligned movement um, and maybe recognizing that they are outside of the frames of the European Union, in the most traditional sense, and finding their allies elsewhere. Um, in previous research, I've also written about the Chinese migrant populations, and I see that migrant populations, which perhaps we shouldn't be calling them migrants anymore, um, I see them as also a way for Serbia and Montenegro to find alliances outside. Um, alongside with Montenegro, it's also important to note that they actually have an, a local black population. Um, they're Afro-Albanians whose ancestors were brought there during the slave trade, Ottoman slave trade, and they still live there. So in a Montenegrin sense, it's local, it's native, not very many people know about them, but that's a type of physical blackness. Um, in my research, I also identify two other forms of blackness one which is situational, and this refers to the greater region as a whole, whereby um, their engagement or their involvement with whiteness is sometimes questioned and sometimes relative to Western Europe. So there's that type of blackness. And then finally, there's um, this type of blackness that emerged in the 60s and 70s in the United States, what I call black revolt or black cool, right? So it, it arises, arises in the forms of sonic and visual forms of blackness that you can see on screen or in music. And therefore, when you look to film in the early 2000s or even to now, you can see these sort of ghetto landscapes that do not need to be reminded that this is taking from 
what would be considered to be uh, black visual landscapes within the United States, but putting it in a Serbian context. Um, and then, of course, hip hop, which you cannot um, talk about hip hop without talking about its African-American roots. And so these are the three different forms of blackness that I see them engaged with. There's sort of this very um, official one that is coming through non-aligned movement and therefore retracing the steps of what was in the 50s and 60s all the way up to the 80s. Then there's the ones that's the one that's thinking about east and west, and then finally the one that you can see when you're walking around the streets of Belgrade or even Novi Sad, for that matter. So, do you think kind of this post-socialist aesthetic, this like Soviet? It's usually um, talked about in a Soviet sense, but mm -hmm. um, these kind of East European city blocks yeah. and architecture. Um, do you think that's just visually kind of a, a parallel setting? It's completely a parallel setting. Mm -hmm. um, so in the early 2000s, I've written about this elsewhere, you have not just these city blocks, right? You have the hip hop layered on top of it. You have people playing basketball. So it's, you're right, it's abs you're absolutely right. It's sort of this natural landscape to project those forms of blackness. Um, and in relation to Serbia, I think it was very useful to show that Serbia had in some level become a ghetto become ghettoized and therefore you have these signifiers that automatically point to this ghetto existence without having to say that that's what it is and then I guess I just want to ask you maybe one more question sure. um, on a project you're working on right now mm -hmm. that I think ties more into situational blackness in the Balkans um, could you talk about your project on blackness in the Balkans as it pertains to the Roma communities? Sure. So what um, the, the idea, it's not that's not situational blackness. Okay. I would say that that's the more physical epidermal, which um, even in situations where people are not seen uh, or have or not seen as having these physical markers, they're presumed to have these physical mm -hmm. markers. And that is a part of the larger project. But it's one segment of the project, project where I will be interviewing people. Um, I, I suppose this is as good a time as any to tell this story. I was in Belgrade last year and I was in a taxi and I was driving with this man and I like to talk to taxi drivers so I was having this conversation with him and he goes, I'm the only one in my family who isn't, who's black and I said, what are you talking about? You're the only one who's black. And um, I said, so people think that you're black and or people see you as dark and he said, yes. And he's like, well, you're not dark in the United States no one would see that you're dark and he goes, let me see your hand. And I know that people on podcasts can't see me, but we are essentially the, the same complexion. And so it made me really think about the uses of blackness. And I had already thought about it in relation to the Roman community, but in terms of the way that they see themselves as being black or being white um, or something in between. And whereas we tend to think about blackness as coming from outside of the Balkans, this one example, and then also sort of digging a little more deeply and starting to talk to people about it, has resonance locally, which then really problematizes the idea of blackness as only residing within the Western world because it has its own uses locally. Mm -hmm. Wow, um, this is really fascinating. <laughs> Dr. Rucker Chang, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And I uh, hope you have a great rest of your conference. Same to you. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.